We're going to be turning to uh, Numbers chapter 16 this morning, many verses, reading verses 1 through 35. Now Korah and the son of Izar, son of Koath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abram, and the sons of Elab, on the son of Perath, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, and every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show us who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them, and put the incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, it is, a, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel? To bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers and the sons of Levi with you? And you would seek the priesthood also? Therefore it's against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent them to Dotham and Aram, sons of Elam, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of land flowing with milk and honey? to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of the fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense in it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censer, 250 censers. You also, and Aaron in each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled on all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the Spirit of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Saying to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dotham, and Abram. Then Moses rose and went to Dothmerim, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing, nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dotham, and Aram. And Dotham and Aram came out and stood at the door of the tent, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby, You shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that has not been of my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, 
or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all their belongings to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of their assembly. And all of Israel who were around them fled at their cry, and they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And the fire came out from the Lord and consumed two hundred of the fifty of the men offering incense. Maybe seated. Hey, while they're, while they're finagling with that, um, good morning. Um, I hope you were listening as uh, Chris was reading that passage of Scripture. Uh, quite a frightening passage of Scripture. And uh, so appreciative of, of this book of, of Numbers this week as I had an opportunity to study it. Um, looking forward to sharing with you kind of what we've been doing the last uh, few weeks, uh, just a, a flyover, but it's a flyover with a lot of meaning, with a lot of significance, with a lot of uh, importance for uh, the body of Christ here at Hope in Christ. This is not just a history lesson about the people of God long ago and what happened to them, but through what happened to them, uh, the Bible says in the New Testament that uh, these are examples, right? These are written for us to learn from. So pray this morning that we would be able to learn from what we're reading in this book of Numbers. So to that end, we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in here. Um, join me if you would, and we'll pray. Out of the depths, Lord, we cry to you this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you would hear our voice. Lord, as I speak, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would be your spokesperson this morning, and I pray that you would let our ears be attentive to what you have to say this morning. Lord, we ask that you would teach us through your good spirit. Reminded in your word, Lord, of the psalmist, who says, if, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you. I appreciated the psalm that Kevin read this morning, this God who forgives. It is true that with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. And so, Father, I pray that we would wait for you, that we would see that our hope is in your word, that we would have souls waiting for you, watching and longing for your son's appearing. And, Lord, I pray even as a nation that we would be watching uh, for you. We've sinned greatly as a nation against you. And again, the psalmist uh, has words of wisdom for us, words to hold on to, words of hope. And that is that with you there is mercy. With you there is abundant redemption. We thank you, Lord, for redeeming us from all our iniquities. The psalmist declares how great and awesome your name is in all the earth. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would remind us once again that our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heaven and earth. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, 
As I was thinking about this morning, thinking about this book of Numbers, I was, I was drawn to uh, initially thinking about uh, wh- whenever I'm traveling somewhere, you know, we're talking about road trips through the scriptures. And so this is our fourth road trip this summer, and we're road tripping this week to the book of Numbers. And as I was thinking about whenever I travel somewhere, from time to time I'm traveling uh, for uh, refereeing a game, this and that, and I'm looking for directions where I'm headed. I tend to go online, I search a map, I plug in the address where I'm going, and then I, I plug in my home starting address, and then the computer uh, pops up in just a matter of seconds. It's an amazing thing. It configures a route for me. And a lot of times, what I see on the screen is a combination of routes. I'll see usually route one, route two, maybe route three if there is a third one. And they'll put them there on the screen. And I get to choose which route I want to go. Now, some of the routes, in fact, the nice thing about the map online is that if you know the roads well enough, you can actually uh, manipulate the, the map in such a way to go a different road and then it'll calculate that route so you can actually customize it uh, if you know those roads well enough. When you're selecting a certain route, you're confronted with making a decision, aren't you? You're making a decision. You know, for instance, Route 1 might be the fastest journey. It might be the fastest. In other words, if it's the fastest, it's oftentimes going to be the interstate, right? You can go the fastest, the main roads. It might be Route 2. Route 2 might be the shortest journey. In other words, it might be less miles to get from point A to point B, but you might end up having to go some back roads to get where you need to go. So you have the fastest journey, and you have the shortest journey in terms of miles. This morning, I'd like you to think about what if that third route, as you're punching your coordinates in on the the map, what if the third one said longest journey? Now, truly, it would be hard to calculate the longest journey, wouldn't it? I mean, you could always come up with another road to make your journey a little bit longer if you wanted to. But let's just say, for example's sake this morning, it's a legitimate option. Fastest route, shortest route, longest route. Now, for those of you who have traveled any distance with a family, with little ones, for example... You are looking for the fastest way to get from point A to point B. How soon can I get there? We've all heard that familiar refrain, are we there yet? Huh? Yeah, we've heard that one before. Are we there yet? I've heard stories from dads that once they get in the car, they just motor straight to where they're going, their destination. They don't like to stop. They announce beforehand, if anyone has to go to the restroom, potty breaks happen right now. Because when we get in the van, this van's going until we get to where we're going. Can you imagine choosing the longest route? I mean, on, the, on those options, can you imagine choosing? I mean, who chooses the longest route? I was just thinking about this this week as I'm reading and studying the book of Numbers. 
I mean, fastest or shortest are the most familiar options. Many of us take one of those two options, but the longest route... There's not too many of us here, I believe, that are interested in seeing how long it takes to arrive at our particular destination. Amen? We're not not too interested in how long it takes. We want to get there. Well, as you open up the book of Numbers, you are one year, two months removed from their departure from Egypt, right? Exodus was the departure from Egypt. Numbers opens up, and that's where we are. We're one year, two months removed from their leaving Egypt. And the people of God are making preparations to journey to their intended destination, this land promised by God through the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the long-awaited land flowing with milk and honey, that's the destination for God's chosen people. Well, map calculations tell us that the trip from the wilderness of Sinai to the plains of Moab... The journey is approximately two weeks. About two weeks. Now, that would have been the fastest route, perhaps. Roads were somewhat limited back in the day. They didn't have too many options for rerouting. I want you to keep in mind that the people of God were traveling not by way of comfort, they didn't get a bunch of rental vehicles and drive the latest models to the promised land, okay? They were predominantly traveling by way of the sojourner, the the foot. Some of them maybe rode a donkey. We don't know for sure, but many of them were walking. I want you to consider approximately 2 million people traveling, walking together, a two-week journey. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, opens up and it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting. Remember we talked about last week how significant it was that the beginning of Leviticus, Moses is hearing the instructions from God from in the tabernacle. Numbers opens up. Moses is now being spoken to in the tabernacle. Okay? So that's where we get. And, And it gives us the day. On the first day of the second month in the second year. I didn't make that up. That's exactly where we begin in the book of Numbers. If you fast forward to Numbers chapter 10, and you see in Numbers chapter 10, verses 11, 12, and 13, it reads this way. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month. Numbers 1 starts out the first day of the second month. Numbers chapter 10 goes to the 20th day, the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle. All right, that ought to be a big flashing neon sign. The cloud was taken up from the tabernacle. What's that mean is going to happen? The people are ready to go. It's time to go, right? And the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled in the wilderness of Paran, talking about where it's going to be going. So they started out, I love this, verse 13, Numbers 10, they started out for the first time according to the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. They started out for the first time. They're getting ready to go. Now you would expect at this point the scriptures to follow up a chapter or two later from Numbers 10 with something like this. And on the fifth day of the third month in the second year, the children of Israel arrived in the land of Canaan. 
That's not the record of the scripture, though. At the end of Numbers and the beginning of Deuteronomy, the people of God are situated on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan River into Jericho. And Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 3 and 5 says, Now it came to pass in the 40th year, let me repeat that, it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of that month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as commandments to them. On this side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law. Now I hope as I read that and repeated that, you caught that the year, what year it was since the people of God had come up out of Egypt. Numbers chapter 10, the people are leaving from Oreb, the mountain of God. And by the end of Numbers, and as Deuteronomy opens, it's now the 40th year. Remember the fastest route was approximately two weeks. The longest route would no doubt have been what we see here in the Scripture, and that is 40 years. We go from approximately two weeks to a journey that lasts 40 years. Imagine that, church. Two weeks, 40 years. Which route are you going to choose? If you have the choice, which of those are you going to choose? It is true that some of our journeys in this life are specifically coordinated by God. In other words, there's, there's no rerouting. It's going to alter the path God is blazing for you. And we see this in the life of Moses. Moses is rerouted to Egypt early on. He's rerouted then to Midian for a number of years. And then he's rerouted back to Egypt before leading God's people through the wilderness to the plains of Moab. All of our ways are directed by God. The truth of the scriptures is this, church. God knows all things. There's nothing that escapes His notice. He is sovereign over the affairs of all men. And yet the Bible also teaches that our decision-making, walking with God according to the commandments of His Word, or walking apart from God, forsaking His commandments, decision-making plays a critical role. It impacts the journey itself. It impacts the destination but it also impacts the sojourner, the one who's making the trip. I want you to think about the physical impact alone of making a journey from Sinai to the plains of Moab on foot. Two weeks of traveling would wear you out. Two weeks on foot would wear you out. Imagine 40 years of traveling in circles in a wilderness. What was it, church, that postponed the arrival to the promised land? In a word, what would we, what would we say? Disobedience, unbelief, rebellion. Could we not also say poor decision-making? Numbers chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men, verse 2 says, these men that were going to be sent, these were leaders. Take a note of that, asterisk. These men who were sent to spy out the land, these were leaders of the people. 
Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which, here's a key phrase, which I am giving to the children of Israel. I'm giving this land to the children of Israel. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 1 recounts this period in Numbers 13 and 14. Deuteronomy, as we'll see next week, is a history in many regards. I love some of the detail that's in Deuteronomy 1 about this passage in Numbers 13 and 14. It mentions, it gives us some helpful information about this journey. In Deuteronomy 1, 6 through 8, it says, The Lord our God spoke to us. Moses is speaking to the people about God at that time, speaking to them at the mountain in Oreb. And he says, You've dwelt long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. If you fast forward, Deuteronomy 121 says, Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. On multiple occasions, God is speaking through Moses to the people saying, go into the land. I'm giving it to you. It's your land. Possess the land. Don't be afraid. Deuteronomy 1.22 says something very interesting as an added detail to the account. Moses says, and every one of you, that's the people, every one of you came near to me at that time and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and of the cities into which we shall come. The plan, Moses says, the plan pleased me as well. So I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe. Now, hold that piece of information because I think this is very important to look at this and and land on this for just a moment. As I read Numbers 13 and I read Deuteronomy 1, I'm struck with what some might regard as a contradiction in the text. By the way, there are no contradictions in God's Word. There's there's what's called a lack of understanding on our end. (laughs) Okay? So this was interesting to ask the question, to see what the Scriptures have to say. Did the people come up with this idea to scout out the land, or was this God's idea? Well, when you read Numbers, it seems to indicate it was a directive from God to Moses to send out the 12 men, one leader from each tribe. When you read Deuteronomy, it seems to state that every man came came to Moses with this great idea of scouting out the land. It also provides us with Moses' take on the idea. He says, hey, I'm well pleased with it. I thought it was a great idea. You know, it's always easy, isn't it, in retrospect to say, that was a bad idea. Has anyone ever said that before? Something's happened, and we're looking back on it, and we're like, "That that was a bad idea. That was a bad idea. Sending 12 guys on a scouting mission into enemy territory. And when you get to the book of Joshua, you see that Joshua sends spies into the land of Jericho. But you'll notice that he sends only two. It's interesting that Joshua sends two. We don't know exactly why he sent two spies. Perhaps as one of the two spies sent out in Numbers 13, Joshua realized that two men could agree. Two men could actually agree with one another. 
I think there's a leadership lesson that he learned. Twelve men on a scouting mission is not a good idea. As I tried to reconcile the pieces of Numbers 13 and Deuteronomy 1, I believe that the Lord does indeed speak to Moses about sending the twelve men into the land. I believe Moses took the word from the people, a word which he himself was pleased with, He took these words to God, and God moved it forward. How often do the people say something? Moses takes what the people say. He takes it to God, and God says, okay. I believe that's what happened, trying to piece together the text. You know, there's also some level of fear entering the land of the Amorites. And God has given them the land. We've already spoken about that. He's given them land. He says, go and possess the land. It's your land. I'm giving it to you. And yet you sense a bit of trepidation on the part of God's people here as you read. And you know what it reminded me of from the scriptures? We'll get to it here shortly as we make our road trips. You remember that passage that's in Judges chapter 7 about a man named Gideon? Do you remember that story? Well, in that story about Gideon, Gideon is told that he's going to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. And Gideon's a little bit fearful, isn't he? I mean, I'm, I'm, who am I? I'm the youngest. I'm from a tribe that's the least... I, I don't know, I think you got the wrong person, God. Remember he sets the fleece two times before God? Remember that story? God shows up, answers it. And then God tells him, this is good, God tells him that he's going to gain victory with just 300 men. And again, once again, I believe Gideon is a little fearful. He's not quite sold on the odds before him. And I love the words that happen next in Judges 7, 10 and 11. God says to Gideon, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp. You see, I I was reading that and thinking about that as I was thinking about what we see in Numbers 13 and Deuteronomy 1. I believe God commissions these 12 men, these 12 leaders, that he might provide a level of comfort and security to a fearful group heading into enemy territory. The scouting mission, listen, it's given clearance by God to confirm for the people God's own word. Notice, In Numbers chapter 13, when the directive is given by God through Moses to the people, in Numbers 13, there's nothing at all mentioned in the text about the possibility of turning back from the promised land. There's nothing mentioned to these 12 men about, listen, about making the decision as to whether we should go into the land or not. That's already been settled. God speaking to Moses to send these men. In fact, if you look at Numbers 13, 18 through 20, it gives us clear instructions on the objectives of these 12 scouts. See what the land's like, whether the people are strong or weak, whether the people are few or many. See whether the land is good or bad. See whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds. See whether the land is rich or poor. See if there's any forest there or not. That's the criteria It's not, hey, I'm sending you 12 to to make a decision as to whether we're going to enter the land or not. That wasn't even part of the equation. None of these instructions in Numbers 13, 18 through 20 
has to do with decision-making for the entire camp of Israel. Perhaps that's the rub. Decision has already been made by God. His people are going in, just as promised. You know, I spend some time on this because the reroute to the promised land was no small matter. God said it was time to move from the mountain of Sinai. God said that His people were being given the land. God said they were going to go in and possess it. He had given it. He promised it to them. So however it all came together in the end, we know what God said about this land of promise. And we know the end result of the 12 spies who returned from surveying the land over 40 days. This book of Numbers is oftentimes referred to as wilderness wanderings, right? Wilderness wanderings. If you were going to summarize the book, you might just put down wilderness wanderings. That's, that's, that's a good label for it. We think about wilderness and we think about desert. We think about dry land. Thus the cry on many occasions for water, (laughs) right? We think about the word wanderings. What's that conjure up? It implies a sense of aimlessness. No goal in mind, no real objective. We're just wandering. Think about someone wandering around. They're wandering. These are the wilderness wanderings. Think about two million people wandering. Aimless. The children of God logged some unnecessary miles in their journey. That's really the subtitle of this message. Unnecessary miles in life's journey. A journey that was only intended to last some two weeks lasted 40 years. Friends, that's a lot of unnecessary miles. In what sense were these unnecessary miles? Unnecessary in the simple fact that it didn't have to go that way. The 40 years of wanderings in the wilderness could have been avoided. Decisions were made contrary to God. There was a fear of man that became bigger than a fear of God. Trust in the majority. The 10 that gave a bad report. Trust in the majority one out over the minority who said, go for it, we can do this. God's given us the land, remember? The people of God were given the land. They were called to go in and possess the land, and yet they leaned on their own understanding. Does that sound familiar? A familiar Proverbs 3 They failed to acknowledge God in all of their ways. They didn't trust God's word. This God who had not long ago rescued them out of slavery and brought them out of Egypt, they heard what he had said. They saw what he had done. They recognized his presence among them with the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. He never left them, nor did he forsake his people. Yet when it came time to enter the promised land, the children of Israel come up with a plan of their own. In fact, we see Moses agreeing with the people that, hey, this, is well, this plan well pleased him. I don't know that Moses necessarily saw what was coming on the back end of it when these guys came back from their 40-day spying trip. 
you know, it led me to believe and wonder what, what kind of dialogue happened amongst these 12 spies that were sent out. I mean, did they come together at all and discuss their plans? Did, did they pray about what they were going to say to Moses and the people? Did they, did they think at all about how the report would further frighten the people or help bolster their faith in this God of heaven? You get the idea that ten men lost sight of their objectives for spying out the land. They came back reporting on the land, but attached to that report came a decision, a decision contrary to what God had already spoken. Church, it's dangerous to be making decisions on something God has already clearly made. Praise God, there were two men, Joshua and Caleb, who said, go for it. They returned, go for it. In fact, we hear their words in Numbers 14, 8 and 9. Listen to their words. They're trying to encourage the people. They're trying to get the people to go the right way, the way that God had wanted them to go. And they said, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the Lord, or fear the people of the land. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Joshua and Caleb said this, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Unnecessary miles, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Think about all the preparations involved before Israel leaves Sinai in Numbers chapter 10. They take a census of all the fighting men in, in chapter 1, the book of Numbers, right? We, it starts with a census in chapter 1, and we see another census takes place in Numbers 26, okay? They structure things in such a way that the people of God are encamped around the tabernacle. Very orderly, structured camp. The tabernacle is the centerpiece of Israel, encamped. And whether the people are encamped or whether the people are moving, that tabernacle and the ark is right in the middle. That's no mistake, church. The presence of God is literally in their midst. We see here in these first ten chapters, the Levites set in order. And the sons of Levi are all appointed to a work and service in the tabernacle of God. Kohath and Gershon and Merari, the sons of Levi, they're all appointed significant assignments pertaining to the tabernacle of God. They're called to tend to all the needs of the tabernacle. And that warning is throughout. These assignments and duties given to the sons of Levi, they are the ones to carry this out. And that phrase you see comes back time and time again, lest they die. Someone else comes and tries to do it, don't do it. Why? Lest they die. It's there on many occasions. We see this census also is taken of the group of Levites. We see a word is given in these opening chapters of Numbers about cleansing the camp. There's a word here about unfaithful spouses. They're warned. And God is speaking in these opening chapters to Moses about telling Aaron the specific manner in which he's even to bless the people. I love this. Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 to 26. God says, hey, Moses, 
Tell Aaron, there's a specific way I want you to bless the people. The Lord bless and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. And number 627 says, So they, the priests, as they are giving the blessing, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. It goes back to the promise, doesn't it, in Genesis chapter 12, the blessing through Abraham. The blessing. God is going to bless His people. Numbers chapter 9 shows the people of God holding once again to the Passover. This is the second time since leaving Egypt. They are preparing to journey. And in the process of preparing, they are establishing. Listen, in the process of preparing, they are establishing godly habits. The second time Passover is done together as a people of God. At the end of chapter 9 in Numbers, it speaks a great deal about God's presence among the people. The pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. Decision-making for the people of God would be predicated upon the command and charge of the Lord indicated by a cloud in the sky that stayed put or moved on. Numbers 9.23 says, At the command of the Lord, they remained encamped. And at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. Numbers chapter 10 tells us that they prepared themselves by making two silver trumpets. And these were used to gather the congregation together, to direct movement, a call to war, and a sound of gladness during the feast days. People are getting ready. Preparations are being made. And really that's what we have here in Numbers 1 through 10. In Numbers 1 through 10, I'd like you to think about Numbers 1 through 10 in this way. Numbers 1 through 10, order. We see here in the book of Numbers, there's order provided for us and provided for the people of God in these first 10 chapters. Once the people of God start out for the first time, Numbers 10, It's as though they've lost sight of their preparations that they've been making. They begin their journey, but forfeit belief in their God who had rescued them out of Egypt. And so what we have here is we go very quickly in these first ten chapters from order to disorder. Order to disorder. A bulk of this book is about the disorder of God's people. And the disorder comes about as the people of God go their own way. The disorder happens as a result of God's people losing sight of God. Think about it. God's people losing sight of God. The the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day wasn't sufficient. Now, we may not have today a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud during the day, but church, we have His Word. Amen? We've got His Word. If you are in Christ, you have the Spirit in you. And the Spirit in you is leading you in the right way, always. 
Always leading you in the right way. The Spirit in you is always leading you to the truth in Christ Jesus. Are these not sufficient? How often, friends, do you travel unnecessary miles in your life's journey? How often? I want you to think about that this morning. How often am I traveling and have I traveled as I think about my own life? How often have I traveled unnecessary miles? And the unnecessary miles that I've traveled, I can attest to and point to my own disobedience to God and His Word. Well, the disorder here in 11 through 25, it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And I just would like to give you a few examples. I'm going to give you some C's. They all start with C. be helpful for you to remember. I'm not going to take the time to write them on the board. But you can listen as I go through them. Some helpful handles to remember the disorder. And the first one is complaints. Complaints in chapter 11 of Numbers. It begins talking about the people of God. And there was, uh, they, they actually refer to this place as Tabera. Tabera means burning. The people are complaining and it displeased the Lord as it always does. The Lord heard it, his anger was aroused, and the fire of the Lord burned among them, consumed them. Moses prays and the fire is quenched. The place is called Taborah because the fire of the Lord had burned among them. They're complaining. They haven't gotten very far on their journey, have they? They left in Numbers 10, the beginning of Numbers 11. Wah, wah, wah. Fire comes out from the Lord. Punishment for disobedience. You keep reading Numbers chapter 11. Here's the next C. Cravings. Cravings. In 11.4, the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense cravings. Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we had in Egypt and all the good food in Egypt. But now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. Listen to what they're saying. There's nothing at all except what God gave to us. Didn't God provide the manna? And we are complaining about the very thing God had blessed them with. These cravings, by the way, they named this place Kibroth Hita'ava, which means graves of craving. Because you see, God poured out His mercy. He, he hears what they're, what they're crying out for, and He gives them quail beyond measure. And they go out, and they. I was doing a little searching on this. If my math was correct... It says that in verse 32 of chapter 11, the people, when they saw all this quail, all this meat, they stayed up all that day, all that night, all the next day, and they gathered quail. And it said, he who gathered least. So the least amount that anyone gathered was 10 homers. I don't have any idea what a homer is, so I had to look it up. Right? You probably don't know what a homer is either. I think about it in terms of refereeing, a homer. So that's not what it means. So I'd look it up. 
Homer. 2,081 quarts. Anybody do any canning? Quart jars? You've you got to get a picture in mind of a quart jar. 2,081 of them. Or 65 bushels. That's the least amount that was gathered by anybody. So they get all this, and, and they're getting ready to feast on it while the meat was still between their teeth. Before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people. The Lord struck the people with a very great plague. Why? Because it was at this place where the people yielded to their cravings. Here's the third C, critics. We see this in chapter 12. There's some critics that show up on the scene. And you know who the critics are? Believe it or not, the critics come from within the family. Brother and sister, they're critical of Moses. Hey, didn't God, hasn't God actually used us as well as Moses? I mean, come on. Moses is not the only one, isn't he? Well, God hears what Moses and, 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 excuse me, what Aaron and Miriam are saying. And he says in chapter 12, verse 8 to them, he essentially says, hey, uh, Aaron and Miriam, will you step forward, please? Gulp. When God has you step forward and He's addressing you, there's, you, you, there's some nervousness going on. Here's what He says in chapter 12, verse 8. He says, Why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? I'm speaking to Moses and through Moses. Why were you not afraid to speak against him? He's my servant. We have critics. We have complaints, we have cravings, we have critics. Here's the fourth one. In chapter 13 and 14, the text that was read this morning, uh, I just refer to this group in particular, the 10, 10 of the 12 uh, crowd manipulators. Crowd manipulators, right? The 10 return. The 10 say, oh, you should have seen all these people and how big they were, and there's no way. We're not going to be able to do this. Joshua and Caleb say, yeah, we can do this. Because God said we could do this. And the ten end up manipulating the crowd. Think about, you think about crowd manipulators in the, in the scriptures. And you see this time and again. You see it in, the, in Jesus when he's going to the cross the week prior to. Everybody's all excited about Christ when, when he comes into town and they're clapping and cheering for him. But just one week later, same crowd, mixed multitude, is yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. There were some crowd manipulators in the place. When Paul is in the uh, Ephesian arena, remember people showed up and there was this mob mentality that showed up. There's a, a lot of people in the text says that people showed up and they didn't even know why they were there. That's the whole mentality of the crowd, the multitude. And when you have people who are manipulative and you have a majority, in this case 10 verses 2, in many ways these folks were manipulating the crowd we have another C that happens in chapter 16 with the Korah, as it was read this morning, in the confrontation. confrontation. Korah leads a rebellion of some 250 people against Moses and Aaron, and it fails miserably. As the, let's picture this. The earth swallows up these folks with their families and stuff. Can you, can you imagine the earth opening up and swallowing them. That's exactly what happened. They confronted God's appointed leaders and God shows up 
once again, disciplining them. This disorder shows itself once more. In chapter 16, the same chapter, I'll repeat one of the C's because it shows up again, and that's complaints. Complaints. We see in in verse 41, on the next day, this is after these folks just got swallowed in the earth. You think that might have got their attention. But on the next day, all the congregation complained against Moses and Aaron. You've killed the people of the Lord. God kills 14,000 in that day with a plague. Disorder showing itself again. The next C. If you move to chapter 20. We're moving, moving through the period of disorder in the book of Numbers. And in chapter 20, uh, we'll call this one carelessness. Carelessness. And this time it's Moses and Aaron. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 10, it says, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! You can almost picture Moses shouting these words. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses goes on to hit the rock twice. Now the instruction by God was to speak to the rock, not to hit it, and surely not to hit it twice, but to speak. Moses hits it twice with his rod. This carelessness comes to the forefront as we think about the details that are given to us by God. You see, Moses had lost sight of something early on. This uh, hey Moses, I want you to build the tabernacle according to the pattern, according to the pattern, according to what I say, do what I say. Moses had gotten careless here. Had the people gotten on his nerves? I'm sure they had. Does that dismiss or give us an excuse for disobeying God, though, I would ask? No. When God speaks, it's incumbent upon us to listen and do exactly what He says to do. Chapter 21 is, is the sea that I labeled cold-hearted. And the text says that they were, in fact, very discouraged. They weren't able to pass through Edom, and so they're skirting around Edom, going by the way of the Red Sea, verse 4, chapter 21, and the soul of the people became very discouraged along the way. And what we see here is the people are going back to that same old pattern of harping about their lack of food and lack of water. Fast forward to Numbers 25, the last chapter of this disorder. And we see uh, what I call covenant breakers. It's even while waiting in the plains of Moab that the people of God forsake God's commandments by committing harlotry with the women of Moab. What's the result? 24,000 people died. 24,000 people died as a result of joining to the gods of the Moab, Moabites, and the women there. So it's quite a gallery of disorder, is it not? The remaining chapters in 26 through 36, we have order, we have disorder, we have reorder. Reorder. 
pretty simple handles to remember the book. But these remaining chapters reorder the nation of Israel, and you see preparations being made once again. This time preparations are being made to cross the Jordan into Jericho. Preparations, in fact, we point to preparations being here and here. And in the middle of the preparations, what we have, someone said, and I like this, I thought this fit really nicely. Bookends of preparation, in the middle we have a postponement. Preparing for something and it gets postponed. It got postponed for how many years, church? Forty years. From order to disorder to reorder. Now the reorder begins with another census. So when you get to Numbers 26 and you see that second census, it's there for a reason. Because when you get to Numbers 26, by the time you get to Numbers 26, that whole generation that God had promised was going to be wiped out, it's now gone. So the whole generation is gone. So what now has to happen? Well, we're going to count the number of people again because that whole generation is gone. In fact, Numbers 26, 64 and 65 says, But among these that there was not a man of those who were numbered by Moses and Aaron the priest when they were numbered with the children of Israel in the Sinai wilderness. All right, Moses and Aaron, that's our key. There was a census taken back in Numbers 1, Moses and Aaron. The census here in Numbers 26 is taken by Moses and Eleazar. Eleazar is Aaron's son. For the Lord had said to them, they shall surely die in the wilderness. So listen to what the text says. There was not a man of them left, that generation, except Caleb and Joshua. So the reordering becomes necessary since a whole generation now has died out. Instructions of the daily offerings and offerings to bring for each of the feasts. Instructions regarding the vows. uh, Settling the, the two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan. That happens at the end in this reordering section. We see preparations for battling the Midianites. The reorder section of the text has a helpful chronicling of the journey of Israel. If you want to find out all the stops along their journey on the wilderness wanderings, turn to Numbers 33. It's as though Moses is writing a journal. God is giving him these starting points. In fact, that's what he calls it. Now, Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. And these are their journeys according to their starting points. That's Numbers 33, verse 2. So the reorder includes defining the allotment of land per tribe. And essentially, they said, the bigger the, the, bigger the tribe, the more land that tribe was going to be allotted. Okay? In the reordering, it also includes the boundaries of Canaan itself. So the people knew the north, south, east, west borders of Canaan. It listed the leaders who were going to help with the task of dividing the land. Joshua is going to be the one, we'll see, coming up, who is going to lead that charge. But we see here in the reordering section of Numbers that this is also listing the cities designated and set aside for the Levites. It had cities set aside, six of them. Three on one side of the Jordan, three on the other side, these cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were places that people could go who who didn't, Actually, it was like an unintentional. If you killed somebody on accident, you could flee to one of these cities. And so we see in the reordering part, six cities designated as cities of refuge. The reorder was necessary for a new generation about to enter the promised land. Order, disorder, reorder. It's a helpful way, I believe, to package the book of Numbers. A people on a journey... 
sojourners traveling to their destination. So many miles unnecessarily traveled. The book of Numbers is widely known as wilderness wanderings of of Israel. And in here we read of the countless times that Israel disobeyed, Israel rebelled, they turned away from the commandments of God. And it's in this book that we see vivid illustrations of sin and the results of sin. We see how sin impacts the individual, but also the nation as a whole. You read and you encounter the people's rebellion once again. You read through Numbers and it's like time and time again in chapters 10 through 25. You hear the complaints and you see the cold-heartedness toward the one that's leading them. You witness the covenant breakers. You capture the cravings of the people, these cravings that lead to a grave. And the consequences of sinful patterns before a holy God, they're evident in this book of Numbers. But I want to leave you with, and I want you to hear this, that's not all we see in the book of Numbers. Before we leave Numbers and enter into Deuteronomy next week, I want to make sure that you catch a wonderful gospel thread in this fourth book of the Bible. And it has to do with God's mercy. God's mercy. The period of disorder saw God on many occasions ready to start over. He talks about wiping the whole lot of the people out and beginning with Moses and starting a new nation. Moses intercedes on multiple occasions for the people. And on each occasion, God relents of his pending disaster and he shows what, church? He shows mercy. He shows mercy. Mercy is God's loving and caring way of tending to his covenant people. It's his loving and caring way. And one of the best pictures of this mercy is seen in Numbers 21. So if you turn there with me, Numbers 21. In Numbers chapter 21, they journeyed. The soul of the people, remember, they became very discouraged along the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. That's one of the C's, by the way, complaints, right? So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. Fiery serpents bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. That's called punishment for sin. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from among us. Here we see that the people are confessing their sin. Moses prayed for the people. That's intercession to God for this people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. And so Moses did that. He makes a bronze serpent, puts it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Church, that's mercy. That's mercy. John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, verse 14 to the beginning of verse 16. 
Jesus says these words, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him, that's Jesus, should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world. So in the midst of all this rebellion, in the midst of the refusal to walk with God, in the midst of their sin, God is found going before His people, fighting for them, granting them favor. You remember the story of Balaam and Balak? God is granting them, listen, in the midst of their disorder, in the midst of their disobedience, while all that's going on, it's amazing if you think about it. God is still blessing behind the scenes. He's still blessing His people. He's not raining down a curse upon them. It's the promise that goes all the way back to Genesis 12. Through Abraham, he is going to bless. Blessing of God is upon a people that is unfaithful to him. In Deuteronomy 1, verses 31 and 33, Moses tells the people that it was in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you. As a man carries his son. I love the description. It was while you were in the wilderness that you saw how God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place, to the plains of Moab, he showed you the way you should go. The book of Numbers is summed up. As I was reading and looking at text this week, I was drawn to a passage in Numbers, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. And it simply says to consider the goodness and severity of God. Consider the goodness and severity of God. Of God. The severity of God is seen in the book of Numbers as the wrath of God, God's justice brought about on account of sin, and punishment that oftentimes resulted in the form of a death sentence. But the goodness of God, listen, church, the goodness of God is predicated on His great fatherly love toward us. The goodness of God is what leads us to repentance. His goodness extends grace our way. His goodness results in favor and blessing even when we don't deserve it. His goodness comes in the form of faithfulness. He's faithful even when we're unfaithful. He is good, the psalmist says, and does good. The Bible says that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, praise God. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. That's mercy. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. Church, we leave the children of Israel on the plains of Moab as Numbers closes. Sin in the camp is dealt with. Many lives are lost as a result. What would have been a two-week journey becomes a whopping 40-year journey. Lots of unnecessary miles are logged wandering in the wilderness. There's one less generation now on the scene. 
sin pronounces a 40-year death sentence on the children of God. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And yet in spite of it all, God has not gone anywhere. You know the song we sing, God is so good. It's not just a trite children's song. He truly is good. This morning I would ask for you to consider the goodness and severity of God. You see, both are needful in our understanding of who God is. Both are clearly seen as we journey through the book of Numbers. And by the way, the gospel is good news for the whole world because it's only in the gospel where your disorder can be reordered by God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's only in the gospel where your disorder can be reordered. Only through the gospel, only through the good news. You see, God is a God of order. We see that all the way from the creation period. He's a God of order. Man brings disorder through his sin. But God in His mercy and grace reorders what's been out of order and makes something beautiful out of our brokenness. He's the one who makes something good out of all of our confusion. In fact, I thought it appropriate as we conclude to just sing those choruses together. God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. He's so good to me. Something beautiful. Something good. All my confusion. He understood. All I had to offer Him was brokenness and strife, but He made something beautiful out of my life. But with God, there is mercy. With God, there is abundant redemption. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for being a merciful Heavenly Father. That even in the midst of our disordering, wandering ways, in the midst of our sin, Lord, you are still there. You meet us. You pick up our pieces and and you reorder us. Father, we thank you for how merciful you are. You don't give us what our sins deserve, the Bible says. And for that, we just want to say thank you this morning. We are a needy people in so many ways. We read these uh, seas as we talked about them this morning in the period of disorder in the lives of the people. And Lord, we can find ourselves in many of those places complaining being critical, 
having a cold heart towards someone or something, confronting someone else or confronting you, challenging your ways, coming to the table with with our own ways of doing things and, and foregoing your plan, foregoing what you've already said. I thank you that you're a God of order. You're a God of structure. You're a God who loves us in such a way that you have set in place laws and commandments for us to follow for our good. And I pray, Father, for this church. Lord, that we would be intentional about walking in your ways, that we would learn the examples from the Scriptures and see the ramifications of sin. The ramifications of turning from you and turning from your word. And Lord, I pray in our lives, these journeys in our lives that you, that you set before us, Lord, that we would not log unnecessary miles. Lord, I realize there are going to be trials and hard times that people are going to work through and go through. And you would have us grow and mature through those periods. But Lord, I also pray that we would keep ourselves in the decisions we make, that our decision-making would be in accordance to your word to keep us from unnecessarily traveling a wrong direction. Thank you for leading us by your good word. And thank you for leading us by your Holy Spirit today. May we walk in accordance to the truth of your word. And may we walk as your spirit leads us, I pray. In the name of Christ, our great leader. Amen.